Astrid and Jamila would like to acknowledge that this podcast was made on the lands of the Wurundjeri and the Boon Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and we note that this sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Anonymous Was a Woman. My name is Jamila Rizvi and I'm joined as ever today by my co-host Astrid Edwards and we also have a very special guest. We have Ella Jackson from the Future Women team with us today. Hello Ella. Hi Jam. Hi Astrid. And today we are talking about her story. That is our theme for today's episode and Astrid you and I just had a chat off air about this theme because we didn't want to have to justify why women's stories deserve to be told. I kind of feel like for this audience, at least, that goes without saying. It must go without saying. And so what I want to ask about instead is which women's stories, which women get to have their stories told on the page, which women get the opportunity to be published and who tends to be forgotten and doesn't have that same access. First thoughts, Astrid. It's different around the world. And because we live in Australia, we often read stories that are published in the UK or America or other major English speaking markets. So it is a nuanced question, but in general, it is wealthier women. And I don't mean the super rich, I mean middle class because it takes time to write. You know, as Virginia Woolf said, you need a room to write and not everybody has it. And I think that also there has been, not now, or it's being overcome now, but there has been a hesitancy among publishers to publish stories that would rock the boat too much. So you want to rock the boat a little bit. You want a story that stands out a little bit because that's how people get interested. That's why people pick up a book to read, but you don't really want to publish something and put all that effort into editing and marketing it if you don't think it's going to sell. So I think there has been traditionally hesitancy on that behalf of publishers. I also think it's a really intimate thing to tell your own story in public and you might expose yourself. You might expose yourself to family, to friends, to goodness knows, depending on what your story is, abuse or trolling. And so I think there has been hesitancy on the part of people who tell their stories. Sometimes they do it anonymously. We saw that more in the past, but it still happens. You know, it's a big deal. And there are so many barriers to publishing. I think it's also worth pointing out, of course, that stories aren't always told in books, right? There are an incredible number of mediums for storytelling. And each of us is coming to this podcast today from the lands of the Wurundjeri people who have been telling stories on this land for tens of thousands of years, not necessarily writing them down and having them bound and published in a book by a major Australian publisher. In fact, Indigenous women's voices have been too long left out of traditional publishing. But there are more than one way to tell a story. And one of those ways is through telling that story verbally and handing it down through generations and having it preserved by people rather than having it preserved on the page. Ella, what do you bring to this discussion? What are your thoughts on who we allow to publish, whose stories we pay attention to and the women that maybe have been left behind? I'm coming to this podcast from the viewpoint of a young woman in my early 20s who has grown up in a period of shift where as a young woman and as a young child, I don't remember seeing stories of successful women or I don't remember seeing stories of women's hardship or women overcoming hardship. And at times I don't feel like I had stories or 
narratives to believe in or to look to. And so it's been a really interesting period over, I would say, the last maybe 10 years as I've grown into myself and we've started to hear more voices come through in whatever story format we see. Just the power of that and the importance of that. I also want to acknowledge that I'm coming at this from a white woman. So I get the privilege, the immense privilege of seeing a lot of people who look like myself and hearing from them. So I think it's really important that we start this conversation thinking about where we've come, but maybe whose stories we continue to exclude and those narratives we're not hearing. I think also that's a question of what format someone chooses to tell their story if, of course, they're choosing to write their own story down. Obviously, we think of, you know, autobiography and memoir, but there is also fiction. And again, I'm speaking in generalities, but fiction tends to be, at least in Australia, written by women and bought by women and read by women. I guess, I don't know what that says about women in general. I mean, maybe we love writing fiction and and, and escaping into fiction, but it's completely possible to tell stories about women that aren't your own, that many, many women will read. And I guess I just wanted to, because today we're talking about a work of fiction and a work of nonfiction, I think it's an interesting distinction to explore there. Further to that, I think both fiction and non-fiction through time allow us to track the evolution of our views about women and women's views about themselves, right? If you went back 50, 60 years, the majority of books that were published about women or by women were about romance, were about children, were about the home. They were about, and I don't say this in, in a remotely derogatory way, They were about a small life. They were about the microcosm of the family. And please, again, I don't mean that in a derogatory way. All I live is the microcosm of the family at the moment, lockdown in Melbourne. But over time, we've seen that start to expand. We've seen explorations of politics. We've seen explorations of the workplace. And I think we went through a real girl boss phase in nonfiction by and for women over the last 10 years or so. And now I see that starting to shift, this shift towards vulnerability, this shift towards telling stories of imperfect bodies to telling stories of women who have chronic illness and disability, of women of colour who have experienced intense discrimination, of trans women. And I think we are moving towards a place where diverse stories are genuinely celebrated and actually have the ability to get published. I feel like we are at the beginning of that journey, but I feel like we're kind of on the roller coaster, right? And at some moment, we are going to reach this tipping point where those stories become sought after by publishing houses rather than a rare occasional nod to diversity. So, having said that, let's get started with both a fiction and a nonfiction. Astrid Ella, our first book today is The Dressmakers of Auschwitz by Lucy Adlington. I loved diving into this. It is billed as the true story of the women who sewed to survive. And simply reading that blurb make me excited to dive into this particular book. A little bit about Adlington before we begin. Adlington is a British fashion historian, which sounds like a really rad job. And she has delved into the stories of real seamstresses who defied the Nazis' attempts to 
degrade them and rob them of their humanity. And they did that through their own friendship, through bonds of love that were formed between them and through this act of sewing together. And I think it's, it's, it's almost difficult to think of a more unlikely pairing than a fashion house in Auschwitz, right? It feels bizarre to think about something that is often considered frivolous, feminine and unimportant, and that's fashion. And having that juxtaposed in, I think, what most human beings would think of as the darkest, most evil place that humanity has perhaps ever created. But there is truth in this story. There was indeed a fashion workshop and it was literally a few metres from the interrogation block at Auschwitz that was used to torture people. And what Adlington has done is she has bought the reality of what was called the upper salon to life in this book. And she explores the lives and the relationships and the fears and the fight for survival of these women who sewed as a way to save themselves from not just the gas chambers, but from the punishing physical labour that was otherwise expected of prisoners in Auschwitz. I have so many questions and I'm not quite sure where to start, but I guess I wanted to ask about what do we, the reader, know about the women themselves who Adlington bases this book on? Were they interned at our switch and taken to this sewing salon? Did they volunteer for the sewing salon? Were they brought from surrounding towns to work at Auschwitz, you know, on pain of punishment and death? What was their backstory? Yeah, so Adlington introduces us to the incredible Marta, who has this phenomenal history of her own in sewing and craftsmanship. And she is introduced to us and brought into this world of the upper salon by the wife of pretty much one of the chief SS officers of Auschwitz. And it's her expertise and experience that is really capitalised on by the partner, the wife. And she, by she, I'm referring to Marta, she has this experience and she also has friends and connections from her own town and from her own family circuits and her own Jewish community that she then draws on to pull other women into this almost safety net that this upper salon provides. So it starts with bringing in the first few women until we slowly build out to paint this story and paint the history of almost what Adlington believes to be 25 women in total who were involved in upholding this idea of power and frivolity and beauty for these SS commanders' wives. So we have this incredible strength shown by these women and it's this constant contrast of the most grotesque, horrendous situation there could be with jewels and furs and beautiful linens being put together and cut with such care and precision for these horrendously cruel people. I think a very powerful exposition for Adlington to be able to play on of how we see clothes as beautiful and where they're being made. Here's another question for you. We opened this episode of Anonymous with a woman talking about whose stories get to be told. What is Adlington's 
background. She obviously is a fashion historian and that is where she's found this story. But how did she decide she was the person to bring this real story to life in fiction? Yeah, so Adlington actually spoke about this in an interview I watched. So she initially wrote a young adult fiction novel that was her historian background theorising about the role of seamstresses and creating the role of fashion through the experience of the Holocaust for Jewish women and the importance of it. And through creating that novel, she actually had a lot of family members reach out to her and email her saying, my grandmother was in Auschwitz and had a role in this. My great aunt, I have photos of her and her as a survivor of this experience. I have her story. And so for Adlington, she spoke about how it was a moment of theorising becoming real and that it wasn't just some photos in the background. These are real stories and these are real stories that are important to share. And to potentially go on a bit of a tangent, but um, I think the importance of whose stories are shared in this area of Holocaust and the stories of Auschwitz and the Shoah generally. I'm a Jewish woman and my family has experiences of the Shoah, as we call it, across varying ranges. Much of my extended family was lost in Eastern Europe and I have grown up knowing of those experiences. And my grandma, my nana, she talks to me a lot about it and she talks to me a lot about my family's stories and experiences. And so recently I believe there's been a bit of a resurgence in our interest in the Holocaust, particularly with the release of the novel The Tattooist of Auschwitz, which came under a lot of fire from Jewish communities, including my grandma's book club, (laughs) who felt that it was really unfair and inappropriate to take a fictional stance and to thread through potential untruths of something that is so horrendously dark and real for those who have lived it and survived it. So when I looked at the cover of this book and when I saw its title, my instant reaction was for my heart to drop because it's scary when these stories that are so very real to your upbringing can potentially be fictionalised or taken in a way that has the opportunity to be used by Holocaust deniers, for example. But the space for the actual truths and for the actual stories to be heard in this novel that Adlington has done, that she's come from a space of fictional writing and now brought through the realities of it, I think is incredibly powerful and really meets in the middle of what, I think my grandma's book club would really hope for. I love that. And I'm glad your grandmother's book club would have been more pleased with this one. I wanted to make a comment about frivolity fashion because I think the way society looks down on an interest in clothes and almost snobbishly down on an interest in clothes as something that's associated with young women, teenage girls, and therefore must be something that is not important, is a confection that really annoys me. (laughs) And one of the things this book does is celebrates what clothing does and what fashion can do, that fashion helps people find an identity, that it helps you express who you are. And in a camp where 
people are made to wear the same thing day in, day out, to look the same as everyone else, to assimilate rather than stand out. I think the indulgence of clothes was special and artistic. And in this book, we're talking about Jewish women who were forced to sew for their oppressors, for their abusers, and yet they were still able to find joy in it. And I think, you know, there are so many elements of all great tragedies and moments in history where we look back and we we wonder how humanity got there, where clothing and fashion become critical, right? We use fashion to show power, to show privilege, to show status. Think about the brown shirts, think about the swastika, right? Think about the folk garments that Jewish women were no longer allowed to wear. Think about these high fashion garments that Nazi women demanded would be made for them. I think today we're talking about women's stories and one of the things that women have traditionally shown interest in, something that has been considered a feminine pursuit is clothes. And I think this book looks at clothes from a whole number of dimensions and that really excites me. It was something that was really special about this book. Okay, Jam and Ella, I am taking a slightly different tack today. I have gone for an autobiography, a work of nonfiction by Indra Nui, the former chairman and CEO of PepsiCo. Her autobiography is called My Life in Full, Work, Family and Our Future. Now, before we get started, I have to say two things. First off, Indra Nui is a wildly impressive human being, regardless of gender, just wildly impressive. Secondly, I have to go back to what we talked about last week, Jam, when we were talking about memoir. And I may have said something along the lines of, I don't like those autobiographies that start when someone is born and goes through their career. (laughs) And here I find myself talking about one of those autobiographies. So I guess I wanted to start with, yes, Indra goes into where she was born and how she was raised and the influences of her childhood and how they took her onwards to become one of the most admired and respected CEOs on the planet. And let's face it, CEOs aren't normally admired and respected on a global scale. So that is truly a phenomenal achievement. I really enjoyed this and I kind of thought I wouldn't, given my preoccupation with people writing memoirs about an experience. But so much of Indra's life is simply an experience that nobody else has had. And even if individuals have had parts of her experience, they certainly haven't reacted to those experiences in the way that she did and built upon them. Have either of you read this autobiography? Yes, I have. And I'm I'm someone who's admired Indra Nui from afar for many years in a kind of fangirly way. I often quote her when I'm speaking because I do think she brings a particular lens to leadership, particularly of large organisations, that we don't often hear. She's only the 11th woman, I think, to lead a Fortune 500 company and I believe she's the first woman of colour to do so. So she is a groundbreaking individual in so many regards but also I think someone who's quite And again, this is such a trope, but she's quite down to earth. The more I read about her, the more I learn about her, the more I get the sense that she is someone who has not given into the trappings of fortune and fame, a kind of corporate 
fame, I, I suppose. I also have a personal connection in the sense that Indra knew I grew up in India in the late 50s and early 60s. And that was my dad's childhood as well. And India is a diverse, enormous nation of vast experiences. But that story of a young person coming to the West and having to find a new way to fit in, a new language to speak and the nuances that come with that language that go beyond knowing the actual words and their meaning made me think a lot of my dad. Jam, I clearly need to listen to more of your speeches because I did not know that you regularly quote Indra Nui. Two experiences that Indra had when she was relatively young really stuck out for me. Firstly was when she started going to her first serious interviews and she didn't have very much money so she bought really cheap kind of plasticky suit and she was told later that that wasn't a great uh, wasn't a great look and she needed to stop that and then she muses that she should have just worn a sari and so she starts to wear a sari and she's a consultant and she's sent to the midwest of america decades ago where no one would would have seen a, a sari before and she's the best worker they have and yet they keep her in the office because they can't really send her out to to, you know, Midwestern white guy clients several decades ago, but she was still the best and they still kept paying her and promoting her. And I thought about that a lot. The second thing, well away from fashion, but just to kind of show you how she always did the work and was so grounded and so practical. As she rose up the ranks, she got a promotion and moved to Motorola, like the car company, the company that used to make phones, right? she realized that she didn't know how a car works. Now, I don't know how many people listening to this podcast know how a car works. I certainly don't. So you know what she did? She hired two professors to come and give her an hour-long lecture every week, like private tutoring on what is a carburetor? What does a diesel engine do? How do the wheels turn? That kind of thing, which I cannot answer. She taught herself continually as an adult And that just really struck me as something that so few of us all do. And I really admire that, being a lifelong learner outside of, you know, formal academic arrangements, but constantly learning. That's a lesson that's going to stick with me. Ella, what stories or lessons stayed with you from this memoir? Astrid, I really echo those sentiments. I found myself in a YouTube hole the other night about how dams are built because I didn't know. But I think reading the book as a young woman, those sort of practical insights into the way her brain works around designs as well and how she can pick apart and understand a problem through how things are designed and built and the way that she takes on those opportunities to learn is so insightful and so I feel quite you know privileged to get that insight at this age because there's that statistic that says, you know, millennials are going to have seven different careers in really separate places. So Does that mean, well, I hope it doesn't mean this, but does that mean I'm going to be having seven different private tutoring sessions in my life? And maybe those YouTube videos about dams are going to come in handy. But otherwise, that insight into design and learning and to not just give up on it, really quite powerful to read at this point in my life. Ella, I think I'm about 15 years older than you and I've already had five careers, so you are definitely going to have seven. That is a terrifying fact to leave Ella with. I want to touch on some of the moments that thrilled me in the book. One of them was Nuya's clearly very Indian mother, who in one scene, she's just been 
promoted, I think she's just become president of PepsiCo for the first time and her mum sends her out for milk and basically says, I think she tells her to leave her crown in the garage or something like that. She basically says, don't get too big for your boots. Like you are still going to the corner shop and you are buying milk for this family. You don't get to think you're all fancy. And it made me think of my own family and the way families, I think of all ethnicities cut one another back down. Like you don't get to be too big for yourself in your family. In your family, you are always the person you were as a child. There were also some reflections, I think, that were made around the way we support people's working lives. And when uh, Nuyai was at BCG, I think um, her father was diagnosed with cancer and BCG gave her three months paid leave to look after her father. I'm not going to pretend I know the ins and outs of every organisation in Australia, but I'm going to say that is highly unusual for an organisation to provide paid leave when beyond standard sick leave for an individual when they are sick is rare, let alone to provide that kind of generosity when it comes to a family member being unwell for that period of time. And New Yai talks about the fact that it, it changed her life, that for her, had she not had that support, she would have been really financially compromised. This memoir is, you're right, it ties all of her personal experiences, including that experience at BCG, back to women in the workforce on a global level, but also at really the home and intimate family level and the responsibilities that all of us as individuals, but often mostly women, have to the people around us and the people we love. I did have a question, though. When I was reading that, I thought she was clearly one of the most extraordinarily talented people that were working there. And I did have a little thought, maybe they just gave it to her and it wasn't a policy because I'm pretty sure BCG doesn't do that these days. Yeah, look, we're not going to let this become an assessment on various corporations' leave policies, but I have a suspicion you might be right. And let's just hope that the special cases that are made like that eventually become something that we apply to everyone. And I think that is exactly what is going to happen if you've got people like Indra Nuyai running companies, right? When you have that experience young in your career, you take that forward with you and you think about your own employees in the same regard into the future. And I think it shapes the kind of leader that you become. And having read this memoir, I think it's pretty impressive leader. Oh my goodness, yes. I highly recommend this memoir for anybody who finds themselves in the workforce, anybody who finds themselves working in a different country than they were born or, or were educated in, and anybody who wants to see a woman rise to the top. That's all we've got time for today on Anonymous Was a Woman. Thank you so much for your company and thank you to special guest Ella Jackson for joining us for this discussion. If you want to make sure that you never miss an episode of Anonymous Was a Woman, then you need to subscribe or follow us wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, I highly recommend leaving us an excellent rating or a review. Firstly, it'll make us feel good. Second, it will help other people to find the podcast and we all want more more women talking and reading about books. That can only be a good thing for this world. This episode was made possible thanks to Hachette Publishing and also by Bad Producer Productions and Future Women. We will catch you next week.